Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast from Tavis Media. I'm Managing Editor Andy Davis. Here's episode 19, it's a new week, and we all tuned into Boris last night to hear him finally give us permission to do what most people have been doing for weeks anyway. I will have to wear a mask on public transport, which centuries ago would make me a highwayman, but now makes me conscientious, not quite as romantic. Anyway, a couple of really, really interesting guests today. First up, we have Steve Collins from the Insight Retail Group. He's an expert in what's happening at the DIY shed end of the market. How are they opening? What can they sell? And what's going to happen in the next few months? And then we're really lucky to have a chat with sales guru extraordinaire Chris Murray. He's got some fascinating perspectives on how sales should be approached in this market at this time. Really inspiring stuff. Definitely recommend that one. But first... It's blatant Tailless Media plug time, and specifically plugging this very podcast and its sponsorship. We've been getting some incredible engagement on this show since it began. I'm really pleased with it, and it's a great opportunity to not only get your message in front of this audience, but also to help me put food on the table. Drop me a line on LinkedIn or email me, andrewdavis at tailorsmedia.com, to find out more. The contact details are also in the episode description. Right, let's find out what's happening at the DIY, the shared end of the market. And down the line here, I hope we've got Steve Collins, who's the MD of the Inside Retail Group. Steve, are you there? I'm here, Andrew. Yes, good morning. Um, good morning. Isn't the internet a marvellous thing? Now, um, <laughs> you are very much the go-to guy now for finding out what's happening with all the big sheds. So, uh, well, let's start by finding out a little bit about you and what your company actually does. People might know the Kitchen Compare site or the Bathroom mm-hmm. Compare site, but tell us a little, give us the overview of what you do. So the business is Insight Retail Group, that I established in 2010. And as you say, people are probably aware of the kitchen and bathroom compare and also the doors and windows compare sites that we run, consumer-facing websites, and we deal with uh, with retailers. We provide data and leads on that side. Um, but more broadly, we also own and run the news and media website, Insight DIY. So we live and breathe anything within that particular industry, really stretching from garden centres through to the big box sheds, independence right the way through to the trade side and a bit on construction too so and i deal directly with retailers and suppliers on on a day-to-day basis yes and so you are you really do have your finger on the pulse of what's happening at that end of the market so the reason why i've got you on here today is because obviously there's a lot of people reopening the stores opening here stores opening there and i think uh, it's worth getting an overview from someone who knows exactly what's open and exactly what it is they're allowed to sell uh, because obviously there's some independents that are getting a little bit concerned that, for example, B&Q are allowed to sell kitchens and bathrooms when they are not. Is it worth just kind of run through the list of the big retailers and sort of give the status of what they currently are? Yes, of course. Let's just be, give a little bit of clarity, first of all, on on the original government position on this going back to back end of March. Uh, so whether you accept it or not, there are a list of retailers that sat underneath the banner of essential goods, Obviously, that include grocery retailers, but it also included home improvement stores. And at that point, none of the home improvement stores, in the sense of the broader stores, whether that's supplying trade or supplying consumers, were required or requested to close by the government. Now, all the stores, or the majority of them, perhaps some exceptions, the likes of Screwfix and others, um, closed their doors. So B&Q Homebase Wicks on that Friday night, they shut down and basically to review their operations, which they then did for the following three to four weeks to decide what they needed to do to meet the social distancing requirements. They took a very close 
eye on Tesco and Sainsbury's and Waitrose and everybody else to look at what they were doing. And then let's go back about two, three weeks ago now. And B&Q opened their first trial stores over a weekend um, following the new guidelines, which all went well. And post that, they've gradually then opened up all of their stores to the point where I think it was over the weekend about 10 days ago when when all stores were then open. Homebase have followed, but more slowly. So they tested some store opening around about, about two weeks ago. And as of last weekend, all stores again were open. Wix at this stage just have six stores open last Thursday but of course they will follow with the others fairly soon. That's from a retail perspective you've had you've got Howden's and Screwfix tool station that have pretty, pretty much opened from the start and other more specialist retailers within home improvement that, that, that of course remain closed including kitchen and bathroom showrooms but but what can they sell? Well if you walk into a B&Q or home base today you can buy pretty much everything off the shelf but any services like kitchen and bathroom appointments, paint mixing, timber key cutting, anything like that, those services are closed and you cannot partake in those. Anything that interacts with people, that is basically the rule the, the, the rule of thumb that they are living by. Apart from when you pay, of course, because yes. you have to interact at that stage and there are certain measures in place. You can only pay with a card. You can't pay with cash. Staff are um, fully kitted out with PPE equipment at that point, too. So, um, yeah, that's the only engagement piece, really, other than as well queuing outside where staff have to try and manage that. Yes, that's, I think that's one of the things that has got people's goat a little bit is that there's some pictures in the in the media, aren't there, of enormous queues outside B&Q, which is, or, or whoever it is, when you're not allowed to go to a funeral. You know, it's, it, <laughs> you, you can see the juxtaposition there, can't you? You certainly can. We don't need to get into the funeral position now, but funerals are taking place. You're limited to six or eight people. But of course, the, the queuing outsiders, because it's such an unusual thing, we've not, we've not apart from B&M stores opening or a new Wilco, we've not seen queuing outside retail stores for many years, certainly not from a home improvement industry perspective. Um, and of course, that was made worse initially by the fact that only B&Q was open. So anybody who wanted home improvement products, because they had a huge waiting list or waiting time for deliveries when you were purchasing online, everybody was then going to the first being queues that opened. But as more and more stores open, those queues are reducing quite dramatically now. And I think that because people have bought the stuff they needed too, like I say, that's becoming less of an issue as each day passes. They're making stuff up as they go along the entire country, as of course they are. And as you say, it's a completely unprecedented situation. I think one of the things has been this definition of essential. You know, I can understand the essential that if your toilet breaks, you need to go and buy a new whatever it is. But then you see people sort of wheeling trolleys full of shrubs or whatever, and shrubs are not essential as far as I am aware. Then again, you can't only open some parts of the store and not others, dependent on some definition that some faceless bureaucrat has come up with. You can't. And you used the word correctly there in terms of unprecedented because we are breaking new ground. We're making rules as we go along. Um, the overriding message here is, is, is to protect people. So what, what is that definition of essential goods? You, you could end up, you know, well, what, how can I can buy, qu- buy quail's eggs and wine from Waitrose? Um, and yet you can't buy certain products from other stores. So you almost have to park that and realise that the government knew what they were doing initially when they classed essential goods as a, as a key element, because there would be a lot of tradespeople, for example, walking into a trade point, which sits within a B&Q warehouse, to buy plumbing essentials or other items like that. So if you prevented that and you only allowed tradespeople to buy online, as we've seen, there are delays of up to a month or two months for deliveries, 
and therefore you have that problem. So I'm sure the government was aware that keeping home improvement stores open would lead to normal consumers queuing up to buy fence paint, which, which of course, isn't essential unless you get into the whole area of we stuck at home. If you give people the tools and the items to be able to do the tasks they want at home, they're more likely to stay at home. It gives people something to do. And there are mental health benefits in completing projects and making your home and garden nicer. So it, it, it's a very interesting um, element to discuss, really. I mean, if I'm being very quiet here, Steve, it's just that I'm absolutely flabbergasted that you don't think quail's eggs are essential. Well, I'm still working through my stock holding of 60 quail's eggs at the moment. Oh, that's fair and... enough. <laughs> well, I have, my, I have my quail coop out in the garden, so I'm fine. I'm self-sufficient. Let's t- talk a little bit about kitchens and bathrooms, because obviously they can't have design appointments, but I am assuming that they can go in and buy a tap or a door or a handle or a worktop if they so desire. Yeah, there are no limitations to picking any products up off the shelf and walking out with them. So um, that is correct. They will be able to buy anything to do with kitchens and bathrooms, uh, which falls into into that category, really. Right. So which which is fair enough. Yeah, as you say, how do you how do you possibly police limiting specific products? You've been following this market for a long time. You know all the main players in it. What's your gut feeling here? No one really knows. But what's your gut feeling about what's going to happen over the next sort of three or four months? I'm often using the term now, sort of the, the new normal, which is um, widely used across the media as well. And it's, it's, it's an acceptance that we have to understand that things are going to be different for some time to come. And, and I'm thinking probably six, nine, 12 months, even further down the line. So in terms of social distancing, these measures being put, put in place by the retailers now are by no means short term. There is some significant investment here. I'm not talking about floor stickers. I'm specifically thinking about perspex screens and the PPE equipment and everything else that's required, the training for staff. So that's going to be for for the long term. And the retailers are doing everything they possibly can to protect customers and staff because, interestingly, safety is now becoming one of the key retailer differentials, really. I mean, previously it was price and range and service and experience and online presence and all these and suddenly those retailers who are able to make the customers and staff feel the safest are more likely to attract customers to them almost irrespective of what of what the price is so what you'll see i think over the next three or four months all the retailers falling in line whether that is the big home improvement retailers whether it's garden centers if they're allowed to open kitchen and bathroom specialists following these very clear guidelines which are often being put out being out out by trade associations or by the government but it does ultimately mean that there is an impact on store footfall i think consumers are very nervous if you look at what's happening in wuhan province now we are four weeks i think post the lockdown being released and life is not returning to normal in the same way. They're not shopping in the same way, nor are they going to restaurants. So a proportion of the population will be comfortable to, attend, to go out to stores, whatever form they are. And proportion of people will be too nervous to do that. And we'll be looking for other ways to buy the products and services that they've been buying in the past, which doesn't necessarily mean direct impact or involvement with other people socially. So I think that's where the industry needs to think very carefully now about the uh, the direction and, and how to adapt their businesses, really. This time next year, do you think we'll have seen lots of store closures? I actually don't. And, and the reason being, I think that if, if you look at the consumer population in the UK, over the next 12 to 18 months, they are going to have only so many things to spend their money on. 
Let's assume that they will not be travelling as much as they were before. Let's assume they won't necessarily be buying the amount of new cars they were before. New car sales figures were out yesterday, you know, 97% down for April. And although that depth of reduction won't continue, so many more people are working from home and not travelling the way they were before. And maybe we won't be eating out as much. Now, that's quite a lot of cash available there to spend. Now, of course, let's accept there's going to be a lot of redundancy, a lot of people with less money in their pocket as well. But ultimately, homeowners will have potentially more money to spend. And they're spending more time in their home anyway. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to spend it on, in my view, home improvement products, whether that's kitchens, bathrooms, paint, products out in their garden. That is a huge opportunity for this industry to now capture a larger chunk of that disposable income that is available through inspiring people either with their fantastic kitchens and bathrooms or new services in place in terms of being able to um, provide those products to customers or selling those products um, through the internet through them or through social media or however they do that. But I think the opportunity within home improvement is now huge and greater than it's been for some time. That said, I do think that B&Q home-based wicks should be urgently looking at opening screw-fix style stores where they can offer 10,000 products through a very low-cost unit in an industrial estate, click and collect same day, those kind of services, and emulate that screw-fix model, which has absolutely proved to be bulletproof, not only in the last 10 years, but in the last uh, in the last three months as well. At the end of every one of our podcasts, Steve, I ask mm. everyone the same question. It's a very important question. In fact, some would argue it's the most important question. <laughs> And that is, it's for a feature I call Deserted Kitchen Island Discs. And you have to name what is your most perfect, feel-good, happy song that always gets you uplifted and makes you very positive. What is your Deserted Kitchen Island Disc, Steve Collins? Um, I think KC and the Sunshine Band. I, I, I think just everything about that song, and it goes back to the early 80s now, is just something which makes you feel good. Doesn't, doesn't matter what time of the day, where you are, in the car, out and about, that particular song does it for me. See, that is a proper feel-good song. It is. It's right up there. I'm assuming we're talking about Give It Up Here. But of course, yeah, 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 so, uh, Well, look, thank you very much, Steve. Brilliant choice. Lots of insight as usual. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Good to speak to you. Now, if we're ever going to get out of this situation, we're going to need to sell our way out of it. People need to come out of any kind of lockdown with a business to go back to. So let's talk now to, well, Chris Murray here from Varda Cruz. Chris, would, can we describe you as a sales guru? I'm, I'm not going to object to that. What, what, what a wonderful start to the conversation. Thank you. Yeah. So give us an idea of sort of who you are and what your company does, and then we can get cracking with, with how we can help people. Yeah, I, I'm the MD of a company called Varda Cruz, and I'm the author of a number of books on sales, sales prospecting and sales management. My best-selling book is, is called Selling With Ease and another favourite is called The Extremely Successful Salesman's Club. And I write for a number of publications uh, all over the place and I, I spend my life going around the world training sales teams and their managers to uh, to find more business. Uh, and, and as a, a tick in the box, Thomson Reuters and LinkedIn put me in their top 40 sales experts to follow globally at the end of 2019, which was which was a nice bonus. Well, I think you're more than qualified to be on our podcast then, Chris. So thank you so much for spending some, some time with us. Now, you have worked a little bit in the sort of KBB market as well, haven't you? 
Yeah, I, um, I spent a wonderful time with, with Pog and Pole internationally. It's just such a wonderful industry to be in. There's so many bright and dedicated, well, wonderfully talented designers in, in the uh, in the kitchen world. It was it was a privilege. They obviously stopped working with you, and then look what's happened. <laughs> um. <laughs> so, to, to be honest, it's, it's heartbreaking for me because every single member of the, of the team internationally really cares about that product, and the product was wonderful. The people were brilliant. There, for the grace of God, go the rest of us, you know? Yeah, there's no question of that. Now, yeah. what I want to start with here, and, I'm, and, and, I, and I don't know whether you're going to like this description or not, but in KBB world, we are talking about high-end, big-ticket items. We're mm-hmm. talking about a, a sales process that is very long and involved. And I think sometimes the word sales can be seen as a bit of a dirty word in this sector. People like to think they are designers and not salesmen. Is that the impression you would get? No, absolutely. And, you know, the way around it, and we start every every single one of our training days with this, you've got to replace the word selling for helping. Because um, in the 21st century, we can all find what we want with a click of a mouse. So there's there's no problem as a consumer as a customer going out and finding stuff and in the old days we needed salespeople for that information nowadays being sold at is even more of a dirtier word than it used to be so start with a mental process of changing the word selling for helping my old hero is a guy called Zig Ziglar, who's a, who's a big American sales guru guy and, and passed away about 10 years ago he said that if you go out looking for friends they're really hard to find but if you go out to be one they're all over the place and my sales version of that is if, if you go out trying to find a customer, they're really hard to find. But if you go out to help people buy what they want, they'll probably let you. Yes, and I think that's what good designers do when they are helping people buy a kitchen and bathroom. They are, they are selling whether they know it or not. Yeah, but th- then it gets in the way, doesn't it? The, um, they start to get a bit concerned that as soon as they start feeling that they are selling to people, they pull back on it. So they start getting worried about their pricing structure. They get start getting worried about making sure that the customer's got everything they need. And I'm not talking about ripping anybody off or selling them things they don't want. But if you're helping me create the dream that, you know, the picture in my head, then help me get it. Don't feel bad about that. That's that's a privilege. Exactly. Now, when you're called in to train sales slash designers, where do you start uh, when it comes to these big ticket items? Because it is completely different than selling people trainers or you know a plant pot <laughs> or something. What is the difference when it comes to selling sales technique? Well, the, the important thing to, to, to as a foundation to get hold of is that all sales, whether you are selling uh, a Mars bar or a nuclear submarine, for, follow four different stages. It's I picked it up in, in, in my book, Selling With Ease. Ease is an acronym. It stands for earn the right, ask the appropriate questions, solve the problems, and execute the solution. So first of all, you've got to earn the right to be there. You've got to earn the right to offer the advice. You have you have to be the expert in the room at your chosen subject. But after that, you know everything follows that line. You ask the appropriate questions. You seek first to understand and then to be understood. You explain how you can help. And then you gain commitment from the customer to move forward. You execute the solution. Everything follows that. The, the big thing with big box sales, and particularly people who, who are creative and uh, with the likes of designers, you start getting a wee bit worried about value and pricing. And you know, once you get your head around that space, the two things that people buy are value and trust. It doesn't matter if that's cornflakes or again, nuclear submarines. If you buy own label cornflakes, you do it because you think it's great value and you trust the people who you're buying it off. If you buy Kellogg's 
it's, you, you don't mind paying a little bit more because you trust and you think it's still good value. If you buy them from Harrods, you've probably got your mother-in-law coming to stay. And, and, and those, are the re- you know, those are the reasons that people buy things. One of my training days, for, for actually for, for, for another kitchen designer, but the conversation was all about price and they were really worried about uh, how much this, this big box item was going to cost and, and whether it was morally right to be charging that much or even charge them more and, and sell them more. And, you know, my answer to that is, Take a look at a £20 note. Go put £20 note out of your wallet uh, and, and say to yourself, how much would you let someone buy that off you for? And, and you know, if you're a brewer or a change, you might get 22 quid for it. But very few people would sell it for 15 for bulk. You know, nobody's going to give you 10% for buying two, off for buying £2,020 notes. And the only difference between a £20 note and what you're selling is that the £20 note has got £20 written on it, stamped on it, and you know its value. Your value is in your offer, your expertise, and just your brilliance as a designer. If you can get that right in your head and realize you're helping people, then actually it's just like selling anything. One of the debates that's always going on in this market is, are you selling product or are you selling a service? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess the, and the answer is, of course, that you're doing both. Actually, can I counteract that by saying you're selling an outcome more than anything? It's, it's, um, I'm actually not buying the kitchen. I'm not buying your design services. I'm buying the space that my family are going to gather in, that I'm going to cook in, that I'm going to entertain in. What you're actually selling is the outcome of where I'm trying to get to. Everything in between that is just people doing stuff that I've asked them to do. The basic sales process here, you will teach techniques, I'm sure, in closing a sale and that kind of thing. How mm-hmm. does that change between buying a, a plant pot and buying a, a kitchen or a bathroom at the end of a long <laughs> sales process? How does, that, how does that closure change? You know, every now and again, people ask me for the, um, for the Jedi mind trick that, uh, that they can yeah. use at the end of a sale. You know? and, uh, and, and thankfully, it doesn't exist. The, the, if you think that from the moment that someone meets you, looks at an advert, reads your letter, if the first touch point that you have with a customer, if the whole objective is for them to be a buying, paying customer, then you actually start closing with the first touch point. And if you think like that, if you do all your correspondence, create all your correspondence and, and, and all your communications, and every single meeting is the fact that the whole thing is the close. There's no, there's no Jedi mind trick at the end that, that will change two hours, three weeks of bad selling. Once I trust you and see value in what you're offering, then all you're doing with every step of the way is helping me to commit to you. You're gaining my commitment through every single step, every single, every single moment. What you should get to, the best point in a sale, and it's what everybody should strive to, is that we sell so well and we, we meet the expectations so perfectly that the customer at the end of it says, how do we get started? When do we get started? Because the customer should be closing you. you should be, the customer should be so excited about the desired outcome that they're wondering when they can do it. I think people are worried at the moment of getting the tone wrong at this very moment in time because mm-hmm. of what's happening, that they don't want to come across as, as salesmen or being salesy or being pushy. Do you think they should worry about that? Is there, is there a way to handle that, do you think? Well, I think and it's, it's the same with, with, with any level of sales. If you're ringing up selling overpriced funeral care to someone in their mid-90s, then I think you should be ashamed of yourself. If you are dispensing an antidote for a horrible disease that a government uh, is willing to pay you the appropriate price for, then you're, you're doing humanity a great turn. It's all where you find yourself and how you find yourself doing it, you know? The big thing at the moment is that we could all have a wee bit more business right now. You know, I mean, my my main day job, apart from, apart from 
writing books is being in keynotes in rooms of about 2,000 people and being in training rooms with 10 to 20 people. And at the moment, as of recording, that that, that that's not a good situation to be in. <laughs> I'm not a yeah. big fan of of, the, of, on, of online training. I don't think it's overly effective. I like to be able to help people in the room and speak to them in the room. So, so you know, I'm, I'm feeling everybody's pain, and I know where everybody's up to, but another one of my big heroes, a guy called Jim Rohn, who is also no longer with us, unfortunately, but the, uh, he, he talked about his ant philosophy. And there's three parts to it, but the two most important parts right now are that ants spend the whole of summer getting ready for winter, and they spend the whole of winter getting ready for summer. Trees don't grow all the way to the sun. Everything stops somewhere. But, you know, this too shall pass. We will come out of this like seasons. Recessions happen every 12 years. I mean, I think we were due one. I don't think we were due it quite like this. But, you know, I've been warning for the, for the last 12 months that another recession was on its way, even though we didn't feel like we were out of the last one. It's just they come like waves. It's They're like seasons. And this too shall pass. What you should be doing right now is thinking about who you want your next perfect customer to be. And like ants spend the whole of winter getting ready for summer to hit the ground running. And let's say that we all start having some level of normality again at the end of June, mid-July. Let's, let, 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 let's, let's hope for that to happen, just, just to kick us off. How, with the work you're doing now, how are you going to ensure that those people, your target audience, the people who you want to be buying from you now but can't, how do we make sure they're lining up to come and speak to you? Because ants don't sit in the anthill all the way through winter going, oh, well, I guess that's it. They get ready for summer. That's about as positive as it gets. Uh, and, I think it's fa- and I do think it's fantastic uh, advice. One of the theories that everyone's working towards is there is going to be this pent-up demand uh, that comes because people aren't buying cars or holidays and that kind of thing, and, and, in, and mm-hmm. they've been stuck in their house for so long. So, you know, you are right. You have to prepare f- and hope that that wave of interest is coming towards you. Uh, but the important thing is to, to make sure that you're attracting it because it might be a bit slower than it was before. There might not be as many of them. But the people who are ready, who have studied customer attraction and thought about the sales and the sales prospecting process in these couple of months, instead of trying desperately to scratch away for a bit of business now, they should be ready to come out of the anthill at the end of winter and hit the ground running and make sure that people are coming to them. And there are ways of doing it. And Google customer attraction and uh, and sales prospecting on on YouTube. There there are hundreds of people offering brilliant bits of advice. Go to, go to my YouTube channel. Go on LinkedIn and follow some of those um, hashtags for sales prospecting and customer attraction and social selling. There's so much you can be doing now without worrying about not getting business right now. Well, Chris, that's absolutely brilliant and it's uh, fantastic advice. Now, the it's going to be really interesting now what your answer to the final question is. Um, yes, sir. Which is a course for the for the feature I have called Deserted Kitchen Island Discs. Uh, I need to know what your most positive feel good song is. My most positive song. Let's see. Where am I going with this? I spent my entire childhood listening to, to rather sad and melancholy rock. And <laughs> so I, I'm going to go for Mr. Blue Sky. Didn't we all? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go for Mr. Blue now. Sky by ELO because. Uh, if nothing else, I reckon that's what I want to be buried to anyway. <laughs> now, Chris, you're the second person who's chosen that. 
that is officially, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm the judge, the most positive feel-good song that's ever been recorded. There's, <laughs> there the, there's nobody who will, there was nobody who will not be cheered up by Mr. Blue Sky. <laughs> Quite right. So, look, so. Chris, thanks for your time, mate. We'll catch up again soon. I hope so, and uh, all the best to you and all your audience. Thank you, Chris. A huge thanks to Steve Collins and Chris Murray for joining me in this episode. Their contact details are in the episode description, and I'll be back later this week with another show. See you then.